This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Episode of the Keep It Fantasy Hockey Podcast. Welcome. Yes, it's episode 150 of the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by two guys who at one point owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. Though, Brian, I actually own Eric Carlson in a pool for next year. A pool that we just did with the patrons. So, at least I can say I have him in one pool. Anyway, I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski. Big show tonight. With me is my co-host and the fantasy hockey robot himself, Brian Com. Hello, everyone. Hello, Elon. You know, you usually rag on me for my my inane or mundane comments during this portion of the show. I don't know how interested anyone is that you have drafted Eric Carlson in a draft that just started today. It's actually a slow draft. It's an email draft, which is a very interesting concept. Anyway, now I'm talking about it. There's so many more exciting things to talk about on this week's episode. Thank goodness. Now, let's keep talking about it. So a patron, Sam, set up this oh tool. And there's Stop. 12 of us. Stop. You have a... What is it? 12 hours to make your pick. Once you get the email saying it's your pick, it's going to go all summer long making our picks. It's going to be a lot of fun. Maybe we'll share the final draft <sighs> with our listeners. They might be curious to know how the smartest people in fantasy hockey, the patrons of Keeping Carlson, what they think about next year's draft rankings. Anyway, okay, how about we get started with the show, Brian? We haven't talked since all of the free agent frenzy from last Saturday. So there is quite a lot of ground to cover. Well, wait, hang on. That's not quite true. We have talked. The patrons have heard our takes. We had the patron cast recently, so so we had that conversation. But you're right, it's been a while since you and I have talked on camera about all this. We have so much to get to. You usually just say this part, but I butt in. All right, so I'm just going to get started now because maybe people don't want to keep being teased about all of our content. But I'm going to tease you a little more because before we get into all of the amazing free agent uh, signings, let me remind you. What, so, uh, much, so much preamble tonight. You, well, blew, you blew the preamble on this slow draft. <laughs> So, okay, so we won't even talk about Dauber Hockey? No, we have to talk about DauberHockey.com and how it's the best place to get your fantasy hockey news all summer long. All the articles still going up, the ramblings. People aren't giving fresh fantasy takes in, like, well, any of the places you normally find them during the year. But Dauber Hockey, you bet, is still bringing them on a daily basis in those ramblings and in articles whenever stuff happens. So, yeah, over at DauberHockey.com, check it out. Yeah, to me, it's a pleasure to talk about Dauber Hockey. I used it quite a bit to prep for this episode because they wrote an article about every single free agent signing and trade that had any possible fantasy impact. And they talked about which players benefit, which players get hurt, including players not even on the same team as the place with the player's side. Like, for example, we're going to talk about Kevin Shattenkirk first. And not only does this affect players on the Rangers, but also Washington. We'll get into it as well, but it's all covered on DauberHockey.com. You could have read this a week ago, 
Okay, Brian, let's get started. By the way, also Dauber Prospects is a really good podcast. But okay, let's get started. And website. And website. We are going to talk about as many of the free agent signings as I think are fantasy relevant and a couple of trades. So we've got a lot to get to. I'm going to try to make this like a free association style bounce around from player to player. And so it's not going to be exactly an order of relevance like we normally do, but you guys will follow along. It'll be fine. Let's start with Kevin Shattenkirk, though. Signing with the Rangers, a four-year deal, $26.6 million dollars. And so the guy's 28 years old, so he's right in the prime of his career. And we're talking about Kevin Shattenkirk. He's an elite power play producer. He had 56 points last year with St. Louis and Washington, 27 of them, almost half on the power play. He had 44 points in 72 games in 2015-16, which is a 50-point pace. 26 of those points were on the power play. The year before, he actually had a 64-point pace. He only played 56 games, though he had an injury. 25 of his points were on the power play. This guy gets a lot of points and a lot of points on the power play. So you would think that the Rangers are getting a 50 to 60 point D-man, which is very valuable in fantasy, but also valuable for them. I'm curious to know, though, for Kevin Shattenkirk himself, does this help or hurt his fantasy value? I feel like it can't be amazing for him. Like he goes from being on a power play with Ovechkin and Backstrom in Washington. And before that, he was on a power play with Vladimir Tarasenko. So we're talking fantasy elite guys, guys that get drafted in the first rounds of most drafts. Now he, he goes to the Rangers where like, who's the highest player that gets drafted on the Rangers usually after Henrik Lundqvist, like maybe Zuccarello or Kreider or, or Zibanejad, you know? So it seems like the star power won't be there. I'd imagine a top unit, maybe for Shattenkirk, at least at the star will be like Zibanejad, Kreider, Zuccarello, and maybe like, Rick Nash or, or JT Miller, I don't know, Buchnevich. Maybe they put another defenseman there to get Ryan McDonough as a 2D3 forward situation. So yeah, to me, it seems kind of like a downgrade in terms of names for Kevin Shattenkirk to play with, but maybe he's good enough that he'll still be a 50, 60 point defenseman, even moving to the Rangers. What do you think? Yeah, here's the thing with Kevin Shattenkirk. He's not, uh, he's not concerned about who he's playing with. He's perennially a top producer on the power play. And yes, he's really only done it in St. Louis. He had a brief stint with Colorado before being traded for Eric Johnson and looked good there and looked good in Washington. So it's hard to say that doesn't matter where he plays, but I'm going to go ahead and say it doesn't matter where he plays. That's how good he is as a producer on the power play. Over the last five years, Shattenkirk sits second in the league in total power play points scored. He's just 11 points behind league leader Eric Carlson. But here's the thing. Shattenkirk has played nearly 500 fewer power play minutes than Eric Carlson, accruing only 11 fewer points. That's almost 250 extra full power play opportunities worth of ice time. And this advantage, of course, is going to show up in Shattenkirk's rate stats. He is head and shoulders above the league in power play points per 60 minutes over the last five years. Chris Letang, Shea Weber, they're a full point per 60 behind him. That's a big gap. And then the rest of the pack, trails nearly a point and a half behind. We've made this point several times, but just to make it clear as day, Shattenkirk's power play production is as elite as it gets in the NHL. And I say all this to illustrate what he can do for a team's power play rather than what a team's power play can do for him. I think JFK would be very proud of what Shattenkirk offers his power play. Anyway, I think that where Shattenkirk goes, a great power play is going to follow. Like there is a small sample size involved, but just look, at Tarasenko before and after Shattenkirk left St. Louis last year. Tarasenko, we know, has been a good power play producer for a while now. He had 19 power play points over 61 games with Shattenkirk as the quarterback in St. Louis. But then after Shattenkirk was dealt away, Tarasenko had just three power play points over the final 19 games of the year. That's a 25 power play point pace with Shattenkirk and an 11 power play point pace without Shattenkirk. So that is why I say that Kevin Shattenkirk 
brings the power play success. He's not relying on the people around him. And I think there's a more than serviceable unit in New York ready for him to step into. Yeah, so I'll... uh disagree with you a little, Brian. I don't think that he's going to be the close to 60 point pace defenseman on the Rangers like he was on St. Louis and Washington. Like, if you think about it, on St. Louis, after Shattenkirk left, Alex Petrangelo came in. He had, I mean, it's a very, very small sample size, but he did very well on the power play. He had five power play points in March. So what does that work out to? If there's six months in the year, that would be 30 power play points over the season, which is similar to what Shattenkirk has done. Anyways, obviously, that's like nothing to talk about. Five power play points from Petrangelo. I'm just saying that he was playing with really good people like Tarasenko and you're saying Tarasenko didn't get many points on the power play, but I guess other players picked up the slack at least for Petrangelo. So I don't know, like I still think Shattenkirk is going to be the top power play defenseman on the Rangers. And that's probably worth like at least 45. But if you say he's like going to be just as good and be like above 50, maybe even closer to 60, I don't don't know. But hey, that's your opinion. That's fine. There's also other players affected. I guess you probably want to respond, right? To to which point in particular? Like, I so here's the thing. Like, when I mentioned the terrace angle before and after, again, I'm going to illustrate that it was a small sample size that he played without Shattenkirk. And you also had Petrangelo coming in. Uh, there was a coaching change as well happening in the picture. And Petrangelo is not Kevin Shattenkirk. So, like, that's a that's a fairly big drop off in in acumen. If you look at Petrangelo's rate stats, he's uh, I don't have it in front of me, but I don't think he's a top 15 or 20 guy on the power play. It's not like you're stepping down from Shattenkirk to, I don't know, say John Carlson, for example. So it it was a pretty big drop. So you'd expect a decrease in points. And I'm trying to connect the two, but I'm not saying for sure they're correlated. Just uh, a potential reason to to really dig into and understand what Shattenkirk's influence really was. So yes, I'm not not concerned that he's changing teams. I think what he did in St. Louis, he can do just about anywhere else in the league. Yeah, so I don't know. The, the thing is, we don't really know because we only have him playing in St. Louis on the top power play, and he did really well there. But that's also a very strong power play, as is the one in Washington. I, I'd, willing to, I'd be willing to bet board you on that, Brian. Maybe we could come up with a number of total points for Shattenkirk. I think that I'm going to take the under if you go like above, let's say, 53 or 54. But okay, anyways, let's talk about some other players affected here. So Ryan McDonough loses his top spot. Michael in the chat room here is saying, McDonough is Ogg. I guess if you're a McDonough owner, you're saying, ah, because he loses his spot from the top power play. He had 42 points last year, 34 the year before when Yandel was the top power play defenseman on the Rangers. So should we expect closer to 34 points than 42 next year? Seems almost for sure that McDonough is not going to be able to match what he did last year now that he's off the top power play. Yeah, McDonough's value definitely drops to, say, 30, 35 point guy rather than 40 plus. And some of the wind is also taken out of Brady Shea's sales. He had some great times on the power play, and he seemed to have some offensive acumen to, to give even at even strength and seemed to be someone who, if they could get over, like if Alan Vigneault could get past Ryan McDonough being the de facto power play quarterback, then perhaps Brady Shea would be the number one guy. That hope is gone. Uh, though if I have my druthers, Shea will still be the guy manning power play too. So you think that Shea could potentially take McDonough's spot and McDonough loses all of his power play time? That would really kill McDonough's value. I mean, that's what I would like to to see happen. I think Shea could make better use of that spot than McDonough. However, McDonough has been around forever and he was able to hold on to that top unit spot, even with Shea emerging last year. So uh, it's definitely something to watch for anybody who has McDonough, especially like rolling over in a keeper league. That's a really, uh, that's a really big hit you've taken with Shattenkirk coming in and Shea potentially emerging. Yeah, so... Either way, like all of these defensemen on the Rangers get bumped down one spot on the death chart with Shattenkirk coming in. So you already mentioned 
Brady Shea and I was talking about McDonough. Of course, there's also Anthony D'Angelo who got traded to the Rangers in the Stepan deal. So he probably gets bumped down as well. If there was any chance of him getting on one of the power plays, that chance decreases. Uh, so, but aside from the New York uh, defenseman, we get some forwards who maybe gain value because a guy like Mika Zibanejad, who we already mentioned is now the top center on the Rangers with Derek Stepan leaving. Now he gets to be on a power play with this super elite power play defenseman, Kevin Shattenkirk. So if we think Shattenkirk could do better than McDonough did, then we should assume that being the top center on the Rangers, you get my logic, right? I'm saying it might be good for Mika Zibanejad. He had 37 points in 56 games last year for a 54-point pace, which, you know, he was injured for a bit. So who knows if he would have been able to keep that up for the whole season. But now that he's top center, top power play, playing with Shattenkirk is 60 points, a reasonable expectation. I feel like we should expect a bump after last year. Since last year, he wasn't the top center and he wasn't on the top power play. And when he was on the power play, he was with a much worse power play defenseman. Yeah, he's long had the upside as someone who can touch 60 points. And this is a situation where he's going to have the opportunity to do it. If you look at who was most successful on the power play in New York last year, Derek Stepan was their top power play point producer last year. And so the hope is that Mika Zibanejad is the heir apparent to the first unit center role and that he can do some damage there. But I'd also be looking to the wing to find Zuccarello, Kreider, and Nash as potential benefactors from this move. Perhaps even JT Miller as a dark horse if he can wiggle his way onto that top unit. Yeah, I could see Rick Nash struggling to hold that spot. I don't think he was even on the top power play for a lot of last year. He's obviously hitting a strong age decline. Okay, so that's the Rangers. Let's move over to Washington now. Let's remind people about a guy named John Carlson, who going into last season was a very sought-after asset in fantasy hockey, but it was not a great year for him. He was already losing his top power play spot even before Washington traded for Shattenkirk. Matt Niskanen was getting some time. So Carlson had a bad year. Everyone who drafted him probably was really angry about it by the end of the year and probably his value is going to go very far down in drafts going into next season. But I would think that it's his job to lose, right? John Carlson's probably going to be the top power play defenseman on Washington with Ovechkin, with Backstrom, with what we'll talk about with who now that Marcus Johansson's gone. Maybe there'll be someone new there that who could benefit. But either way, I think John Carlson's definitely someone that we should keep in mind going into our drafts. Like this is a guy that, yeah, last year, his 37 points in 72 games was a big disappointment, but just two seasons ago, he had 39 points in 56 games, which was a 57 point pace. And he had 55 points in 82 games the year before. So he had two straight seasons of being a 55 plus point defenseman last year was horrible, but I think there could be lots of reasons to explain it. Maybe not so much before they got Shattenkirk, but I think don't forget about John Carlson. He could be a good dark horse guy to pick late in your draft. Yeah, Carlson had been having a relatively rough 2016-17 campaign, even before Shattenkirk came on the scene in Washington. And after those mid-50 point pace campaigns that you mentioned, Elon, Carlson was on just a 45-point pace to begin with this season. And then that dropped to 33-point pace after Shattenkirk arrived. And again, with the caveat, small sample size. But it is uh, it is instructive into, into what happened. Like, he did definitely take a hit when Shattenkirk came. His power play production also dropped, of course. Uh, though he still did manage to finish with 16 power play points, which is not the 20 or more that you might have hoped for. But still respectable, especially for somebody who is bumped down to the second unit for about a quarter of the season. So being restored back to that top unit quarterback should give him the chance to get back to 20 power play points. And that could conceivably bring Carlson back up to 50 on the whole. 
but that's about as far as I'm willing to go with him. 50 points, maybe upside at 55 if things really start to click again on that power play. I know Vetchkin and Kuznetsov and Backstrom can, can find a way to make magic there again. That was missing for part of last season. And another thing to remember when you're drafting John Carlson is he's not blocking shots the way he did for two years when he broke out. He still had that reputation last year, going into last year, even though he didn't do it the year before. So I think we should all at least be on the same page now, knowing that he'll still put up okay numbers. Like he'll be in the top 50 shot blockers in the league, but not the like out of this world, near 200 blocks on the season levels that put him into the top five in the league and shot blocking for a couple years straight. I agree. Likely, like you say, the shot blocking days are behind him. Maybe he'll decide to do it again or the coach will say, go back to how you were when you were really good. Yeah, I mean, there's a small chance that perhaps his play style is tweaked again with Carl Alsner out of the picture now. I'm not sure how that's going to affect the Caps on a a system-wide context and if he's going to be asked to play a slightly different role than he's played in the past. And I'm talking about Carlson here. So, So that is something to look out for. We know he's done it before but I'm saying you shouldn't be drafting or valuing him with the expectation that he's going to give you two and a half, three blocks a game. You should just be expecting one and a half, two in the very, very best case scenario. Right, which isn't nothing. And yeah, so Brian, you say 50 points would be what you'd be expecting from him as like the highest possible thing. So I mean, he definitely could be a sleeper if a lot of people are agreeing with you. Because like I said, he had two seasons in a row of being closer to a 55 point guy. But I understand your reasoning for now being a little more apprehensive and bumping it down a little bit after such a horrible year last year. And also Washington losing a lot of players. Maybe I'll get to that now. Well, you should, but also just to clarify, I said upside of 55. I said I'd have him at about 50 in a year where we expect everything to go the way it is. I still think he can do better than that, but I think some magic would need to happen for him to get there. Okay, well, he's not going to be getting any magic from Marcus Johansson, who was traded to the Devils, or from Justin Williams, who got signed by Carolina, or from Carl Alsner, who went to Montreal. Shattenkirk is, of course, gone. So Washington, they've lost a lot of players. They haven't really brought anyone new in. I know you wrote a note here in the doc saying that I should mention Devontae smith Kelly is a new member of the Capitals, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to be expecting too much from him. So Washington, if they want to be able to keep all their offense that they've had over the last few years, they're going to have to build from within and have new players stepping into the these roles obviously there's two big holes to fill with Evgeny Kuznetsov two common line mates leaving Johansson and Justin Williams were both playing with Kuznetsov for most of the season they're both gone also Marcus Johansson like I mentioned before he was on that top power play for most of the season he's gone as well so who do we see stepping in there's potentially a lot of fantasy value to be gained from players stepping into these roles I would guess that the heir apparent to get on that top power play finally will be Evgeny Kuznetsov, who's been so good at even strength and pretty good on the power play when he's there. But most of last season, he was on the second power play unit. So maybe he could take Marcus Johansson's spot and that would really propel him into being able to repeat what he's done in the first couple of seasons of his career in the NHL. Or maybe someone else will take Johansson's spot. Maybe they like having Kuznetsov centering the second power play. So I'll be curious to get your thoughts there. As far as Kuznetsov's line mates on line two... I mean, there's a few names that we've seen thrown around. I think the most common ones are Andre Burakovsky, who's been pretty good so far in his young career, and he hasn't been able to get consistent time in the top six, so it would be really nice to see what he can do there. I've seen Jacob Verana's name being thrown around as a rookie next year. He was nearly a point per game in the AHL last year. Also, Brett Connolly is someone who they've re-signed, and if he's going to do something, it's going to have to be next year. Like, you know, he's already around 26, so it's time for Brett Connolly to put up, and we could see what he can do. Maybe he'll get an opportunity. So lots of players that could potentially step in and do something in these vacated spots. How would you rank these three 
three for next year, Brian, like Burakovsky, Verana, and Connolly. Who would you be drafting earlier than the others if you have any interest in any of them? Yeah, so starting with your original point about Kuznetsov, for what they're paying him, I should hope that they play him on that top power play unit and that he's not making that much money to feature on the second unit, which may or may not get more than 20-30% of the team's total power play time. I would see him best used there. If that's where they're allocating their financial resources to get results on the ice, you'd think that the best way to get the most value out of that would be by putting him up on that top line. As for who gets to play with him at even strength, well, there are three candidates. Andre Burakovsky is the one who has the inside track as the guy who has been with the team the longest and has been the one most often called upon when there's been a hole to fill in the top six in years prior. And he did have a great run at the end of 2015-16 that came alongside Kuznetsov. So I'm holding out hope that there is some kind of chemistry to be tapped there. I think he is the front runner heading into training camp. Then you have Brett Connolly, who was a high-end draft pick, taken sixth overall by the Lightning back in 2010. But he's already become something of a journeyman at 25 years old, uh, re-upping this summer with the Capitals, who are the third NHL franchise he's played for already. There always seems to be like these flashes from him, and he has managed two-point-per-game seasons in the AHL, but he's never really held an offensive NHL role long enough to give us a full sense of his capabilities. We have seen a great shot from him in the past, but not for a very long period of time. Now, him playing in bottom six roles for much of his career may be a clue as to how his coaches see him, saying, well, we know he has a good shot, but we don't trust him or think he's the best use for a top six spot. But he has scored goals at a rate that beats most bottom six players. Like he doesn't look like a bottom six player when you look at just his goal scoring. And that's why I still hold out a modicum of hope that he can find himself in a top six role or at least a middle six role and do some offensive damage. And then the third name to consider here is Jacob Vrana, who is a bit of a wild card because of his, well, lack of NHL experience. He's a small forward. Also a previous first round pick. He went 14th overall to Washington back in 2014. He only saw an average of 11 minutes of ice per game in his cups of coffee with the Caps last year. And there weren't really many conclusions to be drawn from those 11 minutes of play. I think he's going to have to make an impression in camp to make his case for that top six job, as will the others. So again, Burakovsky with the outside track. But I think there's room for Vrana and Connolly to impress their way into that top six. Okay, so this will definitely be something Pulis will need to be watching in training camp. Who's looking to be on the top power play? We're guessing it'll probably be Kuznetsov and then who will be playing with Kuznetsov. Or maybe they'll shake up the lines and playing with Baxter. Maybe Kuznetsov goes up to play with Ovechkin. Either way, it'll be interesting to watch. Brian, did you say Brett Connolly was getting two points per game in the AHL? No, he had two seasons. Maybe I did say that. I meant he had two seasons in which he was a point per game player in the AHL. So he's proved he can hang there. Right, but not Wayne Gretzky NHL numbers. But okay, still pretty good. Wow, you, you really nailed me on that one. Hey, if I was listening, that's what I heard. I don't want some listener thinking, look, you got to draft this Connolly guy. He's insane. Okay, so Marcus Johansson, like I said, went to New Jersey. So let's go there and see how things are looking for the Devils, who maybe actually have a decent looking top six. Like, don't look now, but they have Taylor Hall. They have Nico Hishier, who they drafted. Uh, Johansson has arrived. Paul Mary's good. Zajac had a good year last year. Henrik is still there. Pavel Zaka is there. Maybe he could finally break out. He had some stretches last year. So that's seven players I just named. I guess I'll ask you, which of those seven do you think is the odd man out to start the year and won't be in the top six? And also, but anyways, I think that that looks pretty good. Like maybe they'll be able to actually score some goals. And maybe if a guy like Corey Schneider can get back to being the Corey Schneider that we used to know and love, 
maybe the Devils could be a decent team. And maybe Corey Schneider becomes a little more appealing for drafting because maybe the Devils will be able to score. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Let's talk about Marcus Johansson. He had 58 points last season. Is there any chance he could approach that again? Or would that be a pipe dream moving from the top power play on Washington to New Jersey? Like for comparison, Taylor Hall only had 53 points last season. It was in 72 games, so a 60-point pace. But I would be surprised if Marcus Johansson could get as many points as Taylor Hall. So either Taylor Hall would have to go up in points, which I hope will happen, or Marcus Johansson just has to blow us out of the water. Well, that would be a tall order for Marcus Johansson to repeat his 58 points. First off, 58 points last year would have been enough to lead the Devils in scoring. And I just don't know that Marcus Johansson is going to be head and shoulders above Kyle Palmieri, let alone Taylor Hall, who, of course, I expect to lead the team in scoring. And he's also not going to be able to pick up, as you mentioned, those 19 power play points that he was able to cash in with the Capitals. Looking at New Jersey's power play, they topped out at 19 power play points. That was Adam Henrique's power play total, and that was the highest on the team. Taylor Hall had 15 power play points last year. So maybe you could expect Marcus Johansson to to have, well, you should expect him to have fewer power play points and fewer even strength points. There just won't be quite as many scoring opportunities with New Jersey. I would hope that he's in the mix for like top three scorers though. So I still have him 50 points, low 50s. 55 would be a very successful season for him. Brian, you said Adam Henrique led the team in power play points. I believe it was Kyle Palmieri. Yes, it was Kyle Palmieri. Thank you for catching that. Adam Henrique had just 10 power play points. So I'm really glad you caught me on that one. And then uh, you were asking who's going to get knocked out of the top six? Yeah, I mentioned seven guys who I see as potentially worthy for the top six. Of course, it depends on if Nico Hishir makes a team. I feel like he probably will. He's the first overall pick in the draft. But yeah, I named Hall, Hishir, Johansson, Palmieri, Zajac, Henrik, Zaka. I feel like there's only room for six there. Yeah, so on one hand, I feel like it should be a slam dunk that Hishir makes a team. On the other, the Devils aren't contending this year. So if they get to camp and if they start to think that, hey, a year of development is what's going to suit Hishir and their long-term interests the best, then perhaps he spends, uh, he starts the season at least in the AHL, or, or I guess I'd have to look at the rules to remember if he's allowed to even start there with his age. I'm just saying, I feel like it's still on the table that he could be developed for another year because there's no urgent reason for him to get inserted into the lineup. But let's assume he is there. Uh, then my money is on one of the centermen, maybe Zaka or Zajac, to be the one forward who is left out of the top six with uh, I guess my slight inclination is towards Zaka being the one who gets bumped down to the third line. That's not a full season prognosis, though. We've seen Zajac work well in both the top and middle six role, and perhaps the Devils find themselves better balanced with Zajac anchoring a third line than Zaka. The wingers, though, uh, they don't really have much to worry about in New Jersey in terms of being bumped down the depth chart. There's really nowhere to go. There's no obvious options to play ahead of any of Taylor Hall, Nico Heischer, Marcus Johansson, and Kyle Palmieri. And then as for Schneider, you were talking about what he might be able to do this year. I really, you know how much I like him, right? And and how much I've tooted his horn for the past couple of years. I really do like Corey Schneider for a bounce back this year. I haven't really, and I don't think anyone has, been able to pinpoint exactly what went wrong last season, aside from, you know, there was a newish coach and a weak defense in front of him. But at the moment, uh, Schneider struggles last year To me, they're just a small blip or blemish on an otherwise stellar resume. He's not on a downward trend in my books yet, just because of this last season. And, you know, this year, there's a serviceable decor. 
And there's the second year under a new coach's system. So here's hoping that Schneider can get the support he needs to rebound in his personal numbers and pick up a few extra wins on the way. In fact, I'd have a New Jersey as, as a solid dark horse candidate this year if I had a little more faith in head coach John Hines. The potential is there for them to surprise a little. Not a lot of people are expecting anything from them. But uh, not to say I'm anticipating any huge waves, just some small and medium ones, hopefully with some help from Schneider and a little more forward depth. Also, by the way, a news out yesterday that the Devils have hired Roly Melanson as their goalie coach. He and Schneider work together in Vancouver, so maybe he can bring some of the magic that happened there into New Jersey. Okay, so back to those forwards. I think that actually, I think Pavel Zaka could probably hang in the top six. If I recall, he was playing well with Taylor Hall near the end of the year. I would maybe bet on Adam Henrique being the one kicked out. But I guess we'll find out as the season goes on. And yeah, your speculation about Hishir maybe playing in the bottom six if they're not contenders. Well, like Michael's saying in the chat room here, they didn't do that with Zaka last year, like sending him to the AHL. So I don't see a reason why they would send Hishir. But anyways, it's all speculation. We'll find out more as the preseason approaches and we'll definitely keep you guys posted if anything interesting happens so have we learned our lesson talking about new jersey not to get excited about who will be the top power play defenseman there I remember last year going to the season with them having recently acquired taylor hall i was like "Ooh, i wonder which defenseman is going to be on the power play with taylor hall i think it's going to be severson and it turned out it was severson and he actually did pretty well at the start of the year and then totally tanked and got dropped in most leagues i feel like a lot of people are going to be gun shy on going after a guy like severson again who i assume is Again, the guy who's probably going to be the top power play guy, at least at the start. Would you be drafting Damon Severson or are you going to let someone else do it or just flag him in free agency in case he does something? Yeah, the thing with Devil's defenseman, you asked me about Severson specifically. I'm just going to say on the whole, sometimes we say you can't go wrong picking the top power play quarterback or whatever, but you really can't go right picking a defenseman in New Jersey. Last year, it was Severson who led the team in defensive scoring with 31 points. The year before, he led New Jersey defense scoring with just 21 points. The year before that, Adam Larson led with what amounted to a 30-point pace. And this is the picture I'm trying to paint, is that it's been a long time since we've seen a really successful point-scoring defenseman have a season that existed in New Jersey. And like you could look back and say, yeah, last year the Devils' power play wasn't very good. They were ranked 22nd in the league, so where are the points going to come from? But it's actually in the top 10 in the two years prior when Severson had just 21 points and when Adam Larson led the team with a 30-point full-season pace. So uh, I don't know that a, a fixed power play is going to allow for a whole lot more scoring. But yeah, okay, go ahead and grab Damon Severson if you want, if you think he's a good fourth, fifth guy to have. Just keep in mind that you're looking at 30 points from him with 35-point upside until further notice. Yeah, that's fair. Dave in the chat room here is saying, Andy Green time! I feel like if there was going to be an Andy Green time, it would have already happened. But yeah, you know, if, only, if, only Marek, if only Marek Zidlitsky could come back into the picture, maybe he could be the savior that the Devils are looking for on the blue line. Yeah. Okay. So, of course, one player leaving New Jersey is Mike Camilleri, who was a free agent. And he's going to L.A. on a one-year deal. He's 35 years old. He only had 31 points in 61 games last year. Had some injury trouble. Struggled a bit. Everybody had one really good week where he was amazing. But aside from that, struggled for most of the season in terms of fantasy value anyways. But the year before last season, Camilleri had 38 points in 42 games. He was a near point-per-game guy before getting a season-ending injury, or at least he was gone for most of the season. So does Camilleri have another big season left in him now that he'll potentially play on Andres Kopitar's wing on the top line in LA. 
And I'm curious to know, Brian, who do you think is going to play more games next year? Mike Camilleri or Chris Letang? Uh, so I'm going to start about what I think about him joining the, uh, the, the Kings. And if I were able to use uh, Barney's voice from The Simpsons, I would do the I like it bit that, uh, that I like so much from that show. Quick quiz question for you. Can you name Mike Camilleri's first NHL team? Oh, uh, I know he was on Montreal, but I guess that probably wasn't his first team. No, it wasn't. I wasn't paying attention before that. Sorry. You didn't pay attention to Mike Camilleri before that? Correct. Okay. Uh, I'm surprised because he's a very fantasy relevant player for a long time with the Los Angeles Kings. Oh, They're of the course. drafted him. Of course. Uh, I, to me, <laughs> fantasy hockey has only started in the last four years when we started this podcast. That's not true. We've been doing this for like how long now? 15? Has it been 15 years that we've been in pools? Maybe. I don't know. I don't recall. No I, excuse. It's a long time ago. Give me a break. No excuse. Anyway, Mike Camilleri last played. He last, I can't blame you. Okay. I can't blame you for forgetting. He last played for the Kings a decade ago and was, of course, very good there and very fantasy relevant. Uh, he played with Anze Kopitar for a couple of years and they did well together. And hopefully that chemistry still exists. I think more than this helps Mike Camilleri. It helps Anze Kopitar uh, as he finally has someone to help support some scoring on his line. We saw Kopitar trend up once Aginla was acquired at the end of last season. And those two facts have to be at least somewhat correlated, him producing with Aginla arriving. I like Camilleri more than Aginla too, so I'm hoping that Camilleri can help support a bounce back of sorts for Kopitar. I'm still a little cool on Kopitar getting all the way back to a point-per-game player, but now I'm not so concerned uh, about giving him a floor of 60-65 and upside for the mid to high 70s, if I dare. He's now a medium-risk, high-reward pick at the right time in your drafts, and uh, Mike Camilleri will be playing with him. Together, I think they can both get... uh, Well, Mike Camilleri can play on a 60-point pace, uh, but you're right, Elon. He's forever an injury risk. I say he plays more games than Chris Letang next year. Oh, man. That's not saying much for Chris Letang if Camilleri is going to get more games than him. So, okay, LA not only signed Mike Camilleri, but they also signed a goalie, Darcy Kemper. And I'm only bringing that up to transition into talking about goalies, not because I want to talk about Darcy Kemper. So there were a few goalie signings. Well, yeah, I'll I'll just butt in before you get there and say Darcy Kemper signing in LA. Great news for Jonathan Quick. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So yeah, lots of goalies signed. I'd say the biggest names were Steve Mason going to Winnipeg and Brian Elliott going to Philly. So we'll zoom in on them a little bit. I'll quickly tell you the other names. So we've got Anders Nilsson going to Vancouver, Ryan Miller to Anaheim, Niemi to Pittsburgh, Bernier to Colorado, Pavlik to the Rangers, Chad Johnson back to Buffalo. Like I said, Kemper to LA. Also, Eddie Lack was traded to Calgary. But okay, yeah, let's talk about Mason and Elliott. Do we expect both of them to be in tandems next year? Mason with Connor Hellebuck in Winnipeg and Brian Elliott with Mason's old tandem friend, Mikhail Neuverth in Philly. I feel like last year, both Winnipeg and Philly weren't especially friendly places for goalies to play. And that's even if the goalie wasn't in a tandem. So it's hard to get especially excited about Steve Mason and Brian Elliott, though I know for you, it doesn't take much to get excited about Steve Mason. So I'm curious to know what you think of these guys going to their new locations. And also I'm curious to know, like comparing them to each other, because I feel like to me, they're very comparable in fantasy at this point. Would you put them in the same goalie tier when we do Schmorgoliesborg at the end of August? Are you going to have these guys together or do you see one being better than the other for fantasy? I'd be curious to know who you would draft first next year between Steve Mason and Brian Elliott. And also, would you want Connor Hellebuck and or Michael Neuverth ahead of either of them? 
Oh, well, I feel like you already know the answer to the first question about who I'd prefer between Mason and Elliot. But first, let me help elaborate on the point you made that there are several parallels to be drawn between Mason and Elliot going into their new team situations. We're likely to see both of them in tandems. And I don't think it's just going to be at the start of the year. I could see push and pull happening all year long between Mason and Hellebuck in Winnipeg and Elliot and Neuwirth in Philadelphia. The thing that both have to face going into their new teams is that the incumbent goalies, Hellebuck and Neuwirth, are both established with their clubs and they've been committed to in one way or another, whether it be, you know, by draft pick or salary. Uh, This could be an uphill climb for both Mason and Elliot if they're just keeping up with their tandem companion in the way that they play. I think the onus is going to be on them both to outplay their tandem partner. I see 1A being their job to win, even if it appears as though they're on a fairly level playing field with their tandem, I want to say opponent, but it really is partner, uh, heading into camp. Your point on the Jets and Flyers being tough for goalies to play behind, uh, that's well taken too. Like I, I get that. Both these guys and their new teams have buyer beware written all over them. And I would have them both in similar tiers as good goalies. I'm talking about Mason and Elliott still, uh, who can also be very good playing with middling teams. And of course, I'd have the slight inclination towards Steve Mason. But if I'm going for either of them, it's as like a number two goalie on my fantasy team to a certain number one that I've already drafted or like a high end, high upside number three. If they're my only option remaining on the draft board uh, to be my number one goalie, then I'm also like, I feel like I have to handcuff them with their respective teammates, which is something I'd actually really want to avoid because neither of the four goalies in Winnipeg and Philadelphia going into next season, neither one has been reliable for a little while now. And they're all on teams who have not been great at defending their net. So it seems like it could be a really stressful season, just like it was last year with Elliot and Johnson or Mason Neuverth. If you're relying on either one of these tandems to be your top choice in net, this isn't to say that the upside isn't there. I think Mason and Elliot have great upside. I think Hellebuck has great upside too. Neuverth, I would definitely put a step down from the other three, but there is a lot of risk wrapped up in all this upside. Yeah, a lot of people who traded for Connor Hellebuck or have been holding them in their keeper leagues are probably really upset about this. He was supposed to be the number one guy in Winnipeg next year and for the next you know, foreseeable future, now he's going to have some competition. Maybe he could win the job, but it's going to be tough. I kind of see them playing around the same number of games by the time the season's over. It'll be really fun to track. I'm sure we'll be saying the name Steve Mason as many times this year as we did last year, which is a lot, as I'm sure he'll have stretches where he's good and stretches where Hellebuck takes the job. So, okay, Brian, I mentioned a bunch of other goalies who signed. To me, they all seem like they've been brought in as backups. Are there any names jumping out at you from that list that you expect could push their respective starters and get a decent number of games? The only guy... Uh, on that list of names you mentioned who I can see making a serious push for time and also be semi-reliable and putting up an average save percentage is probably Ryan Miller in Anaheim. I also think Pavlik can get a few wins while spelling for Lundqvist, but he's not going to pose nearly the same threat for stealing Hank's starts that Ranta did last year. Uh, Anders Nielsen could also push for starts and post okay numbers, but on a weak Vancouver team, uh, will those even be worth it? Hard to say that they will be at this point. I like Chad Johnson back in Buffalo, but Robin Lehner has definitely established himself as their number one guy. So Lehner's going to have to be injured, which isn't unheard of, or go through a rough stretch, which also isn't unheard of for Chad Johnson to get to see some ice on a consistent basis. And then, of course, 
my favorite goalie, Eddie Lack, can totally push Mike Smith and nab half the Flames goalie starts in my mind. Really happy that he got a change of scenery. Of all the guys in this list, I actually have Lack as the one with the best upside, not the most likely upside, but the best upside, followed closely by Ryan Miller. So, okay, you had Mike Camilleri playing more games than Chris Letang next year. Who's going to play more games between Mike Camilleri, Chris Letang, and Robin Leonard, who actually played 59 games last year? But like you said, he's very injury prone. Maybe that's getting silly. But yeah, I could see him getting injured again. And maybe Chad Jobs, you know, he had that really good stretch in Calgary last year. So he's someone to watch in Buffalo. You know, I don't know. They have a lot of good players. Maybe on defense, they're not as strong. They did sign one guy recently. Who was it? Some defensive guy. Right, yes, thank you, Michael, in the chat room. They acquired Scandella in a trade, so he's someone that maybe could help their defense, or maybe he's overrated. But anyway, I don't know, maybe Robin Leonard or Chad Johnson could be good on Buffalo. One day, they're going to have to be a good team. They have Jack Eichel. If like Edmonton could all of a sudden become a good team with Connor McDavid, Jack Eichel isn't so much worse. Anyways, okay, team to watch. What do you think, Brian? Buffalo versus New Jersey next year. Who's going to get more points? I'd like to say Buffalo, if everyone can stay healthy. It, that's a good question now. It'll probably be pretty close. So, okay, speaking about goalies, of course, one of the first goalies we saw moved this offseason was Ben Bishop. He went to Dallas, and now Dallas has added a lot of support for him with their signings of Alex Radulov and Martin Hansel. And, of course, the big name there is Radulov. He signed a five-year deal for $31.25 million. We thought maybe he'd go back to Montreal, but nope, he's going to Dallas. Seems like a really good spot for him, especially if he could slot in on the top line with Ben and Sagan or at the very least be on the top power play with them. That seems like a recipe for success for Radulov. He had 54 points last season with his most common line mates being Pacioretty and Dano. So I feel like Ben and Sagan are definitely an improvement there, especially you know over Dano. Plus the top power play will be probably Ben, Sagan, Spezza, Klingberg, and Radulov. Wow, it seems like the sky could be the limit for Alex Radulov. How high are you looking to draft this guy for next year? Is he like a decent bet for 65 points? Do you think he's going to do better than he did in Montreal? And like, do you see even upside for higher than that? I'd be curious to know what you think about him because he's also 31 years old. So maybe he's going to have some age-related decline. Also, there's no guarantee that he'll be on the top line. We know how Dallas likes to shuffle their lines, though they do have a new coach. What do you think? Every time you say how high, I just get a little distracted thinking about method men. And Redman, did you ever see that movie? Uh, no, but I've heard of it. Okay, uh, so how high can Radulov go? He's a legit top-line player. I feel like since Montreal was reluctant to keep him, or like the, the truth was they didn't have the money to keep him in the fold, and I feel like his reputation took a bit of a hit because of it. Uh, but he's a legit top-line player who posted legit top-line numbers last year in every sense of the term and like no he's not a big shot taker but he's a fantastic playmaker and i have no reservations giving him 65 point upside and maybe that's even just a starting point he's the sort of guy he could wind up anywhere between 55 and 80 points so it's definitely wow. a risk reward situation when you're deciding where to draft him i would have him in the mid to high range of that 55 to 80 point projection if you're making me you know try and narrow the gap like I could see him being a 65 to 75 point player especially if he's really able to click on that top line and on the top power play unit 
Yeah, so okay, tier one, Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League competitors to Brian. Take note, if you want Radulov, it looks like you're going to be in a bidding war with Brian because he's got him very high. And yeah, for good reason. How high, like you say? Well, very high, according to Brian. By the way, thanks, Cam, in the chat room for reminding me. Dallas also got Mark Mathot. So wow, this team, they are looking to contend next year. Hopefully Ben Bishop can hold it together. I also want to talk about Hansel and I guess Jason Spezza because I wonder what happens with those two guys. They're both centers. Is Hansel going to be like a line three guy i remember last year actually jason spezza got bumped to line three for a bit but he actually had a pretty good year like spezza had a quiet 50 points in 68 games for a 60 point pace last year i know a lot of people were disappointed with him at stretches but his overall numbers weren't so bad are you expecting similar point totals for spezza like again around 60 or any reason to expect more or less and then hansel he had 39 points in 71 games last year so that's a 45 point pace I feel like he was in a good situation in Arizona, obviously being on the top line and top power play. Any reason to expect more than a 45-point pace for Martin Hansel? Or are we just thinking that's probably where he's at or less and probably not fantasy relevant? So there are two situations that could shake out with having Hansel and Spezza both there. One is that Hansel plays a third-line center role, which would not be any better and probably worse than playing first-line center in Arizona last year. Uh, And the other possibility is that Spezza moves to the wing and they play on the second line together. I'm talking about him and Hansel. And this would not be good for Spezza, who is better as a centerman and is better at getting points that way. The good news is that early reports when Hitchcock was hired and Hansel was acquired is that uh, Hitchcock prefers Spezza at center, whereas Lindy Ruff was happy to move him around. So I'm sort of going to assume that the first possibility with Hansel being like a top nine center instead of a second line center uh, that could be the scenario in that case yeah it's going to be hard for him to be fantasy relevant might go back to being free agent fodder sort of a guy you can add and drop based on scheduling or if he moves up and down the depth chart as for Spezza how many quietly good years has he had especially in Dallas he's kept rolling he's been dependable he's had his rough patches but at the end of the year he gets to 60 and I think he's still got another year of 55, 60 points in him. Hansel, I'm going to put closer to 50. Okay, yeah, I'd even put Hansel closer to 40. But e- either way, I don't Especially, think Especially, I- yeah. If Hansel's a third-line player, 45 for sure. Like a half-point-per-game player. Yeah, okay. And then how about in Montreal? They lose Radulov. I'd be curious what you think that means for their top six now that Radulov is gone. They've got Pacioretty, they've got Galchenyuk, and Druin. Those are their big guns. Those are three players. They also have the forgotten Brendan Gallagher, who people liked going into their drafts last year. But he had a really dismal year. He only had 29 points in 64 games. But he's only a year removed from 40 points in 53 games, which was a 62-point pace in 2015-16. I wonder with Radulov gone, can we expect Gallagher to get back in? into that top six, maybe lock in a spot back playing with Pacioretty. Of course, Druin is in, so I don't know how much of a difference it really makes for Gallagher, but I'd like to think that he could do better than he did last year, at least. I remember I drafted him last year ahead of Radulov, or at least I guess I was in an auction for the couple, and I was thinking I'll let other people spend their money on Radulov. I'd go with Gallagher. I'd get the better value. That definitely did not happen. I really lost out there. And then Gallagher also got injured. Anyways, yeah, bad year for him. I wonder if you think he could bounce back. I like Gallagher, and he is someone to watch if he can work his way into a top six role. And it's not just that Radulov has left, right? Druen is in, so there's not like a a wide open hole to be stepped into. But if Gallagher gets there into the top six, you can hope for a truckload of shots, although he can still get those to some extent, even if he doesn't make it into the top six. His rate stats for shots are very good. 
and uh, a 50-point floor with upside for 60 in a top six role, though I think mid-50s is a, probably a pretty realistic ceiling for Brendan Gallagher. Yeah, but you'll be able to at least draft him really late in your drafts or get him for pretty cheap in your auction. So could be a decent sleeper if you see him landing in the high end of that prediction. Yeah, one more point I'll make is he got bumped in his power play usage too. He had just three power play points last season. That was a career low. He had four power play points in his rookie season in which he played 44 games. That was a lockout shortened year. Two seasons ago, he had 10 points. Uh, the season before that, eight. The season before that, nine. 29 points in 64 games. Not good any way you slice it. But there are definitely five or six more points to be had if he can at least get a foot in the door on a power play unit again. Yeah, okay. And the Habs also signed Alish Hemsky. I'd be curious to know if you think he has anything left. I feel like you've been pumping up Hemsky long after he's seemed to have fallen off the fantasy spectrum. Every time he gets a point on Dallas, I remember you would text me be like, oh, check out Alish Hemsky. Maybe uh, we should consider picking him up. And then also, I think we should talk about Phil Dano quickly, who might round out that top six in Montreal and have some value. He could end up playing with one or two of Pacioretty, Gallagher, Druin, and or Galchenyuk. He put up a respectable 40 points last season in his first full NHL season at age 24. So maybe he could go from 40 to 50, maybe upside for a little more. What do you think about that guy? So first off, Hemsky, certainly capable of a top nine role when he's healthy. That's a huge caveat with him. You ask me, Elon, who will play more games between him, Camilleri, Latang? I'd probably have him in the Latang-ish area. So hopefully he can stay healthy after missing a chunk of games last year. And yeah, like a good complimentary winger if he's in the top six a good guy to have in your top nine to help stabilize. I think he's good that way. And uh, Dano here, I have him maybe if he sticks in that second line centerman role, I have him maybe as like an Artem Anisimov type, but not like super streaking hot Artem Anisimov, like half point per game with upside for a little more if he can hang in that role all season long. Okay, let's cycle back to Dallas, where we said they signed Martin Hansel. Who did they sign him from? Minnesota. So let's talk about Minnesota now, who has lost Martin Hansel. They only had him for a little bit last year. But they also made a very interesting trade, moving Marco Scandella, who we've already talked about, and Jason Pominville to Buffalo for Tyler Ennis and Marcus Foligno. Brian, you used to love Jason Pominville when he was slumping in Minnesota. You were saying you expected him to bounce back. He actually did have a good run last year after a horrible start to the year. Do you think that he could keep it going now that he's going back to where he played most of his career in Buffalo. Like, I know I forgot that Camilleri started in LA, but I have not forgotten that Jason Pominville started in Buffalo and had many, many good years there. So does he have another one left in him? I am really glad you brought up Jason Pominville. He had 47 points in a full season last year, which was a bounce back from the 36 he posted the year before, but also was still like, those are the two worst point totals of his career outside of his rookie season with Buffalo, 12 years ago. But the upshot here is that Pominville got those 47 points with career low ice time having been bumped down to 14 minutes of ice per game. And that was the bottom end. That was rock bottom of a four minute free fall he'd experienced over his last two seasons playing in Minnesota. And a lot of those minutes came off his power play time. He had just a shadow of the role that he'd seen in years prior. But with that low ice time, he actually put up, Pominville did some of the best shot on goal and shot attempt rate stats of his career at even strength, not to mention his best points per 60 numbers since the 2007-2008 season. And aside from a sort of inflated IPP, all his other percentages look pretty reasonable. So he certainly looks like a top six winger getting bottom six ice time 
And that begs the big question, does Pominville get to play a bigger role in Buffalo this year than he did in Minnesota last year? And if he does, can he take his successes from last year and apply them to more ice time? So we have to look at the Buffalo depth chart to get a sense of what the answer is there. I can see Sam Reinhart, Benoit Pouliot, Jason Pominville, maybe even Alex Nylander all battling out for two available spots in the top six, maybe rotating in and out. But I feel like Pominville's got a shot to see more than 14 minutes. And if he does, I would love to see him hit 50 points this year with upside for 55 if he's consistently in a top six role, seeing some power play time. That might seem extravagant for someone at his stage in the career. Like, I know he's older. He is going to turn 35 in November of this year. So yeah, he is slowing down and I'm trying to account for that. I used to have him as that sure shot 60 point player. Definitely not saying that's the case. I'm saying 50 points in the right situation, 55 points in a perfect situation. If he does play substantial time in the top six, if you were the type to look to guys last year, like riding Verbata and Marion Hosa and Miko Koivu, although he had a better season than we expected. But if you were looking at him at the start of last season, as a guy you draft in the later rounds, I think Pominville could be in that conversation this year. Again, that's if he ends up in a top six role. If not, then you can probably just leave him and totally forget him for a while. Uh, also, I just want to guarantee you, this is the most Jason Pominville talk you'll find on any hockey podcast this year. So you're welcome, everybody. Well, unless you're right and he has a really good year, then his name will definitely come up as the season progresses. But yeah, sounds like you're pretty high on him. Could be a really nice sleeper at the end of your draft. If you could get a guy who is someone who could get 50 points and maybe upside for 55, like you say. By the way, since you were playing a little bit of a doctor math earlier on and saying some terms that I think some people might not understand, really quickly, so you mentioned that he had his best points per 60 rate stats for a long time. So you're talking about points divided by his ice time and figuring out how many points he got for the minutes of ice time that he got. And so, yeah, it makes sense if he had 47 points, but was playing a career low amount of ice time, it makes sense that he was really high in that stat. And Michael was saying in the chat room that he had a higher points per 60 at five on five than any Sabre last year, including Eichel. So that's very impressive. That would definitely be something that we'd like to see carrying forward. I guess he'll need to do that if he's going to break that 47 points and get into 50-55, even if he gets a bit more ice time. Then you also mentioned that he had an inflated IPP, By that, you mean that he got a little bit more points than you would expect in terms of the ratio of points scored while he's on the ice. So like if a goal is scored while a player is on the ice, we like to see what percentage of the time that player is getting in on that goal. And maybe if they're getting in, like they're getting a goal or an assist, like, you know, 80, 90% of the time that a goal scored while they're on the ice, that's maybe something that's not sustainable. That's something only like an elite player will do. You're saying that Pominville did that a little bit, but then you said his other percentages looked pretty reasonable. I assume by that you mean like his shooting percentages, like he didn't have an extremely high shooting percentage or other players didn't have an extremely high shooting percentage while he was on the ice. Does that cover everything you said? I think so. We'll have an episode later in the summer where we'll talk about all the terms we use on a regular basis in the podcast that might need a little bit of translation. If you'd like to get a head start on those, we did it last year. It yeah. was a, what do we call it? Fanta- fancy fantasy? Yeah, I think so. So you could search for that on our webpage, KevinCarlson.com. Yeah, I just want people to be listening and just sort of having some words go in one ear and out the other because they have no idea what we're talking about. But yeah, you like Pominville. Cool. You mentioned Benoit Pouliot, who also went there. So they have like Pouliot, O'Reilly, Eichel, Kane, Ocposo, Reinhardt, and now Pominville, all as top six options. So we'll have to follow and see who's in the top six, who's on the top power play. I really liked Sam Reinhardt last year playing with Eichel both on a line and on the power play didn't happen for all the season. I'll be curious to see if he's finally going to be able to hit that potential next year, or maybe he gets bumped now that Pominville comes into the picture. Okay. So yeah, 
Last year, we considered Minnesota, the team that lost Pondville, as one of the teams with the deepest top sixes, with the other being Florida. We would always talk about the Panthers as being a team that had so many good forwards, fantasy-relevant forwards, but Florida has made some huge changes. They lost Riley Smith and Jonathan Marshall, so to Vegas. You see Jokinen signed with Edmonton. Yager and Vanek are still free agents. No sign that they're going to be re-signing them. So basically, the relevant remaining forwards left on Florida from last year are basically Barkov, Huberdo, and Trocek. But... They brought in two new players in Radim Verbata and a guy named Evgeny Dadinov, who is another player who started his career with the team. He actually did start his career with Florida. Then he went to the KHL and had a huge career there, including last season he had 66 points in 53 games with the Ska St. Petersburg team of the KHL. I feel like whenever we talk about a player coming from the KHL, they're always a player that played on Ska St. Petersburg. Isn't that where Radulov and like Kovalchuk and Panarin, did they all come from there? That team is a powerhouse in the KHL. They are like how the New York Rangers used to be before the salary cap came into place. Like they have a a budget that's crazy. And yes, you're right. Radulov played there. Kovalchuk played there. Panarin played there. Shipashov, right? Who went to Vegas. He also played there, right? Okay, sorry. Radulov played for Ska Moscow. But Dadanov and Shipachov and Panarin played for St. Petersburg, Ska, and Kovalchuk. Okay. Anyway, now Dadanov comes to Florida. Rumor is he's going to be playing on line one with Barkov and Huberdo. So he could potentially be another one of these guys coming from the KHL and putting up big numbers. Do you see Panarin and Radulov and Kovalchuk upside here? I'd be curious to know how you would rank Dadanov with Panarin and Radulov going into next season. Maybe throw Shipashov into the mix. I've got Panarin, then Radulov, then Shipachov, and then Dadanov. That's how I've got it going. I don't think you can expect Dadanov to step in. You like you couldn't expect Panarin to come and step in and do what he did. Is the upside there? Uh, to be honest, I'm not enough of a KHL watcher to be able to tell you. All I know is I'm I'm staying reserved about it. I would love to think that Shipachov has enough support in Vegas to get like 55, 60 points. And I'd hope Dadanov has the opportunity to do the same, but we're only going to find out after seeing them spend some time in the NHL. Yeah, I just kind of feel like I'd rather have the guy playing with Barkov and Huberdo rather than the guy playing with, I don't know, James Neal and Perron or whatever over in Vegas. So I don't know, I'm excited about Dadanov. Obviously we have to see if he'll actually play there, but also Verbata got signed by Florida and he's coming off a nice bounce back season. You referenced it earlier last year. He put up 20 goals and 55 points with the Coyotes. He's 36 years old though. So it might be tough for him to match those numbers again. He probably won't be on the first line. If what I said about Dadanov playing with Barkov and Huberdeau comes true though, who knows really, but I saw a tweet from at Jameson Coop. And he wrote, he, I guess, is a beat writer for Florida. And he wrote nothing set in stone, but talent said he could see a line of Hapala Trocek Verbata next season. So first of all, I wonder, is that good? Also, who is Henrik Hapala? Is he maybe an even deeper sleeper next year? If Dadanov's taken and you really want a sleeper player on Florida, do you take a look at this guy, Henrik Hapala, who might play in the top six? Beginning with Verbata, I, I don't know without knowing more about either this Hapala character or how Trocek is going to adjust to two brand new line mates. I mean, Trocek has spent the last two years playing mostly with Riley Smith and UC Jokinen, both of whom are gone. It is pretty impressive that Trocek put up 54 points while playing the lion's share of his five-on-five minutes with those two, though. They had 38 and 33-point paces between them. And uh, so, obviously, Trocek got a lot of help on the power play to get to 54 points. He had 12 power play points that helped him 
with his year-end totals. Anyway, it's not a stretch to say that Verbata can do better than Trocek's previous line mates, but I may still be cautious with him, say, 45, 50 points instead of 50 or 55 points. As for Henrik Hoppala, he's a 23-year-old undrafted forward, undersized, quote-unquote, at 5'9", 165. He's a five-year veteran of the Finnish Elite League, though, and he made an impression, clearly. He led the Finnish Elite League last year in points and assists, and similar to my answer with Verbata, we're going to see just how much Vincent Trocek is capable of, both in putting up his own numbers at even strength and contributing to his own line. And that's not to say that Trocek suddenly has a lot more work to do. Like maybe Hoppala and Verbata are better line mates than Smith and Jokinen were. It wouldn't take much for them to get there. It, there's just like this whole question mark over that line in Florida. It's going to be one of the more interesting lines to watch in the early weeks of this season. And I'll also throw out there that I don't see it as being terribly unlikely that Verbata gets a turn on the top line, especially if Dadanov does not work out pretty quickly. It seems like Florida is looking for results sort of quickly. It seems like Florida doesn't quite know what they're looking for, but I feel like they're in a situation where if they don't see Dadanov producing in the first couple of weeks, they won't hesitate to try Verbata up there. Yeah, makes sense. They signed him. They might as well try him if it's not working. Usually a team doesn't stick with the same lines all season long. But usually you at least see Barkov and Huberdeau playing with each other if they're both healthy. That would be nice also for Florida if just they could have Barkov and Huberdeau healthy for a full season. We still haven't seen Alex Barkov, who puts up 70-point paces when he plays. We still haven't seen a full season from him. I'd love to see that next year. Since we're on Florida, any quick thoughts on Aaron Ekblad and Keith Yandel over on defense? Could next year finally be Ekblad's breakout year? It's his year four. You know how Dauber loves those potential year four breakouts. In his three seasons so far, he had 39 points in 81 games, then 36 points in 78, then 21 in 68 last year so that's a 25 point pace so he dipped in what he was doing last year but he did have his most ever shots with 225 I guess he just had a really low shooting percentage Keith Yandel of course came in last year maybe that's a reason for Ekblad to fall a little bit Yandel had 41 points in 82 games as the top power play D-man are you expecting any major changes for either player next year or do you still see like Yandel getting around 40 45 points on the top power play and Ekblad maybe doing better than his 21 but maybe like not much higher than 30 we going to go with a big old maybe here. We still need to see exactly where he's going to settle. I loved Aaron Ekblad upping his shot rates last year, though his shooting percentage, unfortunately, was cut in half from what it had been the two previous seasons, during which he was posting when it was double what it was last year. Those were pretty high goal conversion numbers for a defenseman approaching 10%. One explanation for the drop in shooting percentage last year could be a slight decrease in what was Ekblad's tendency from the year prior to creep down a bit into the right side face-off circle for the occasional shot attempt. But in any case, look, big money is committed to Aaron Ekblad. He's got a $7.5 million average annual value on the cap he's got some pedigree and he seems to be able to hold his own as a top pairing defender it's difficult to go all in on Ekblad based on his season last year and also for as long as Keith Yandel is in the picture but I certainly think he's better than his 25 point pace made him look last year so I'd be looking for 27-2018 for 35-40 points from him provided he gets enough time on the top power play yeah, which you might not get, though. So I would say maybe closer to 35. We'll have to see. We'll have to maybe wait for Yandel to leave before Ekblad could really make an impact. But okay, speaking of potential top power play defensemen, any chance Trevor Daly can step into that role on the Detroit Red Wings? Like, Mike Green is there, but he's injury prone. He's 31 years old, and he wasn't especially effective last year. He only had 10 power play points in 72 games, 36 points overall. Of course, Daly's even older. He's 33. 
but he did have 38 points in 68 games a couple of years ago in Dallas when he was on the top power play. He was there for a lot of the season until Klingberg got called up, and we all remember how that ended. But I remember we talked a lot on Kevin Carlson about how much, at least I, really liked Trevor Daly and the situation that he was in. Of course, it's a little bit different playing on a power play with Ben and Sagan than playing on one in Detroit with... I guess Zetterberg and Nyquist. And yeah, I don't know. We don't want to get into the whole Detroit forward situation. I'm just curious to know if you're expecting anything from Daly next year. Is he someone you'd look to draft late in your draft for like maybe your last defenseman on your fantasy team? And like, I guess, would you prefer him than a Mike Green or would you still go Mike Green? I would still go Mike Green. I see Trevor Daly as a capable fill-in for a top power play role. Uh, He showed that in Dallas and in Pittsburgh, uh, particularly for the Penguins before they acquired Justin Schultz. He was the go-to guy if Latang got injured. In Detroit, I can see him, well, first off, I was going to say like a Matt Niskanen type, but the power play opportunities in Detroit are not the same as in Washington. So I just want to be clear about that. But a Matt Niskanen type in the sense that Trevor Daly isn't made to play this top unit power play quarterback role, but he can step in in a pinch when needed with decent to good results. If I am the coach, there's no way, though, that Trevor Daly should be quarterbacking that top unit ahead of Mike Green. But uh, I'm obviously not the coach in Detroit. And the current regime still thought Nicholas Cronwall was a reasonable choice for that role as recently as last year. So if I could put it on the air, this is where I'd put the shrug guy emoji. Mike Green should be the guy. That's not to say he will be. Detroit seems reluctant, despite having signed him and him being the sort of player they need to fill a role on their team they seem hesitant to actually really commit to him in that role. So Dave's bringing up in the chat, Severson or Daly? Dave's saying Severson. I'd say Severson. For next year? Uh, I Again, it goes back to how silly the Red Wings want to be with their power play situation. Even Mike Green, though, like you look at what he did with the time he got, was not fantastic. So I guess I'm, I'm saying great things about him and his ability. I think the Detroit power play has has larger issues as well. I would say neither one is someone I'd like to draft. How about that? Okay. I'd be happy to have Severson actually as my last defense. I think there's some upside there. I'll get burned again. Sure, I'll, I'll take that risk. Okay, speaking of older players, though, you know, speaking of a guy like Trevor Daly, who's 33, let's go up another five years in age or so and talk about Patrick Marlowe, who signed a three-year contract with the Leafs for $18.75 million, so over $6 million a year to the 37-year-old Patrick Marlowe. Of course, Twitter blew up. Our Facebook group blew up. Leafs fans are not happy with this signing because Marlowe, you know, what was he? Like a third-line guy for a lot of the season in San Jose. He ended the year with 46 points. He had 48 the year before that. But he had 57 the year before that and 70 points the year before that. So four seasons ago. So it's been a pretty big decline from superstar to barely fantasy relevant player. Now he lands on the Leafs. I mean, we could spend probably a lot of time just talking about why they made this move and if it's a good move or how bad of a move this is. I personally don't get why they didn't go for a cheaper, maybe one year player like Verbata or UC Jokinen or, or Versteeg or, you know, but whatever. They made their choice and they've got Patrick Marlowe. And let's look at the fantasy impact of Marlowe on the Leafs. Like I said, 46 points last year. Does going to the Leafs help him? Like, I'd imagine he should get a decent amount of power play time. They're paying him, like you said about Kuznetsov, right? They're paying him like a top power play guy. So you'd expect him to get some time with Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Kadri, JVR. Like, he's going to be playing with some of these star players, which is good, though. He is coming from a team where he was playing with Thornton and Favelski, Brett Burns and Couture on the top power play. So I don't know if you could even get a better top power player, at least not much better. 
So I feel like it's hard to expect too much more from him. Maybe at even strength, he could do a little better. I know there was a lot of the season where he played with Thornton and Pavelski, which is great, but he also played like 25% of the year with Couture and Bodker, which is like, okay. And then he also spent a lot of the season playing with guys like Joel Ward and Chris Tierney, uh, Hurdle, Melker Carlson. So maybe we can expect Patrick Marlowe to be playing with better players for more of the season next year. Of course, he's a year older, which could counteract that. So all of that to say... I see I see him as maybe a guy who could crack 50 points if things go well, but I can't imagine any more than that. Do you think that Marlowe could get back to like the 50, 60, 70-point guy from a few years ago, or do you see him as like a 50-point guy or maybe even less on the Leafs? I'm going to go with the latter there. He is a power play specialist, but I'm not expecting anything more. And some are saying, well, yeah, he didn't do much at even strength last year, but he wasn't given the opportunity and he has something to prove at even strength. That's all nice and good that he has something to prove, but it's not a reason to believe that he's going to post significantly better numbers than he did last year at even strength. He's someone who has been in decline for a few years now, and we've watched it on the podcast. We've downgraded him every year for the last few years. So maybe this year we'll just keep him level with what we expected from him last year, which was, well, about what he put up, although I think you were a little higher on him because of his time on that top unit. I'm with you on saying 50 points, relying heavily on a power play role to get there. Yeah, uh, Michael in the chat room is saying, Marlowe is making as much as Hartnell, Camilleri, Jokinen, Kunitz, and Patrick Sharp combined next season, which uh, that's pretty crazy because I don't know if he's better than all those guys. But anyway, uh, the Dauber trade overview by Ian Gooding pointed out that maybe JVR and Bozak could get traded as a result of this signing of Marlowe as both of those guys are in the last year of their contracts. But if they stay, maybe their value could take a hit. And maybe especially JVR, since he's someone who we rely on as like a 60-point guy. Last year, he had 29 goals and 62 points, 238 shots. JVR was a fantasy beast, but he is a right winger, as is Marlowe. So maybe Marlowe bumps JVR off a good line or off a good power play. Are you expecting anything different for JVR next year now that Marlowe's in the picture? The Leafs getting Marlowe for that price. And actually, before I answer this, I, I want to add to what you said about Michael's chat comment about Camilleri, Jokinen, Kunitz, Patrick Sharp. I'd rather have at least three of those four. No, sorry. I would rather have at least four of those five players than Marlowe without even considering the cost involved. With the cost involved, I think I'd prefer any one of them over Patrick Marlowe. But hey, I'm not GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs. I'm not an exec. So maybe uh, maybe there's something I don't know, but come on. Don't I know everything? Anyway, uh, going back to what you mentioned about Van Riemsdyk and, and Bozak and what Marlowe signing in Toronto means for them, Leafs getting Marlowe for the price they did, that indicates to me that the Leafs want to win now and think they're in a legit window to compete for the next three years. So I can't see the Leafs dealing these guys unless they have a plan to get a return that immediately improves their team rather than fetching the more likely draft picks for down the road. Like that would be if they're rebuilding. But I think them signing Marlowe for three years at this price is like, a, we can do this now, so we're going for it. I don't think trading them is part of that plan. So I'm assuming that they both stay. And to be honest, I don't know that Van Riemsdyk takes a hidden value. I think he's going to be fine. But Bozak's power play deployment could definitely take a hit, enough of one to knock him back down to, say, 45 points rather than the 55 he put up last year when his point totals were nicely propped up by the 18 points he scored with the man advantage, which tied for his career high. I could still see Bozak as a post-draft 
you know, high-end free agent or a very late-round pick in deeper leagues could be reliable for a half point per game, but his upside is limited with Marlowe in the picture now. And Brian, I didn't put this in our planning doc. Sorry about this. You're going to have to answer off the top of your head. But what does Marlowe leaving do for Joe Thornton, who already had not a great season last year, only 50 points? Do you think it's bad for Thornton that Marlowe's off that top power play for him? Or is it like, no big deal? Like, he wasn't even so amazing anyways. You did say he's a power play specialist. Now someone's going to have to step in on San Jose. Yeah, and there's not necessarily an obvious name to do that. Thornton had 19 power play points last year. And yeah, there, there's not really someone from within that can do what Marlo did on the power play. Like Marlo had 16 power play points. So it's a good point, Elon. I mean, we expect some, I was going to say decline from Thornton, but last year was pretty weak with just 50 points in 79 games. I still expect more than 50 points from him next year, but maybe that bounce back is going to be mitigated by uh, some sort of drop in power play cashing in because of Marlowe's departure. And again, not seeing anyone else on the roster right now who can step in right into Marlowe's shoes and help keep that power play running as smoothly as it did last year. Yeah, I have a feeling we'll be talking about the Sharks a lot during the season. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of players cycling into that role on the Sharks' top power play, and they'll gain fantasy relevance, and we'll be saying, oh, pick this guy up as a free agent while he's there, and then very quickly that player will get dropped. You know, Timo Meyer, LeBanc, whoever, like Hurdle, they'll come in, we'll say to grab him, and then soon after that we'll say to drop that player. But yeah, that'll be a team to watch, and we'll see what Thornton can do. $8 million for a year. A lot of money got thrown around over this past week. Okay, Brian, so there were a few other free agents signed, actually a bunch of other free agents signed. There's a few others that I see potentially having some impact. How about I'll just list them all, and then you can say which ones, if any, you think are worth talking about. So I'll throw out there, there was Sharp to Chicago, back to Chicago, Justin Williams to Carolina, Sam Gagne to Vancouver, Chris Kunitz to Tampa, Nick Benino to Nashville, you see Jokin to the Oilers, Kulikov to the Jets, uh, this guy named Spencer Fu to the Flames, another one of these college signings that we get excited about, just like we did about Jimmy VC last year. That was more because he refused to sign it, so it added a little bit of drama. I'd be curious to know if Spencer Fu is similar, better, or worse than Jimmy VC. Um, also, the Flames signed Chris Versteeg, and then really out of the blue, Neil Yakupov over to the Avalanche for a year. So maybe he can still do something. I don't know if he can't make an impact on Colorado, like at least not get healthy scratch, maybe play more than 11 minutes. That must mean his career is over. So hopefully he'll be able to do something. Those are all the names that I think are somewhat interesting, like could be guys we'll talk about during the season. Probably the one that interests me the most is UC Jokinen, just because him signing with the Oilers means there's a chance he could play on a line with Connor McDavid at some point, which would probably mean he'd be a must add at that point. Not saying it's for sure going to happen, but he's someone I'll definitely be watching. Maybe he has a bit left in the tank and playing with McDavid or even Leon Dreisaitl that could obviously be a really good situation for him if he gets there. Yeah, and Edmonton, the thing is that like he could end up anywhere in that lineup. He's a really useful utility player. He can play a lot of different roles. He can be responsible defensively. He can be complementary offensively. So like, if we're just trying to figure out if he gets into a really good position, let's say there are four spots in the Oilers lineup where you can play next to either McDavid or Dreisaitl. So you've got Pugliarvi, Lucic, and Maroon taking up three of those spots. So there's one left. And I saw a depth chart projection the other day. I don't know how much weight to give it, but it was given by the Oilers radio guy who might have a, a little bit of a clue based on what he hears from management. He's, he's a guy who's been in the business a while and really backs up the Oilers a lot for everything they do. So maybe, maybe he was fed a little tidbit of info, but it had Nugent Hopkins playing on the wing. So that would be the fourth spot. It also had Slepyshev playing in the top six as well. So there are a few configurations where Jokinen gets left out of the top six, doesn't get to play with McDavid or Dreisaitl, 
But again, he's a useful player. I could see him moving up and down the lineup as needed. As for the other players that you mentioned, Elon, other free agents that we can wrap up the show by talking about, um, I'll circle back to three of them. Patrick Sharp, Justin Williams, and Chris Kunitz. Patrick Sharp is actually the one that interests me the most because he had great shot numbers last year, awful shooting percentage. Like you could add him and he could single-handedly win you your week in shots on goal or help you in the roto category, but useless every other way. So I'm wondering, with Panarin out of the picture, is he the lucky guy that gets to play with Patrick Kane next year? You go back to his time in Chicago before Dallas. Uh, In his last year there, he sort of played a little bit with everyone. The year before, he played with Hosa and Taves. The year before that, he played with Kane and Dave Boland. And the year before that, he also played most of his year with Kane. So it's going to be him and Brandon Saad who are likely going to take each a left-wing role in the top six. So uh, keep an eye on where each one ends up. You obviously want the one playing with Kane rather than Taves, and Sharp could be the one who gets there. So he could provide some sneaky value late in a draft this year. Justin Williams uh, signing with Carolina. He had 100 points exactly over two seasons with Washington. Uh, But keep in mind that's with Washington. He didn't have those points with LA, but keep in mind that's with LA. Like he was a low 40 guy there. And that's, uh, I mean, that's like a penalty you get for playing in LA. Your point totals are going to go down. So in Carolina, I'd say about 45, 50 points is what you could expect. He fits into the top nine there, not necessarily the top six, but he actually fits perfectly in Carolina in terms of the fantasy value you'd expect from a hurricane. Sometimes he'll help you. Other times he's going to be cold. Sort of like I have him thinking in my mind is like a Lee Stempniak from last season, who if you could catch on a run, great. The rest of the time, not very helpful to your team. And then finally, let's end off with Chris Kunitz, who helps extend Tampa Bay's top six into a top nine. That's where he sits, somewhere in that top nine, in all likelihood is a middle six forward. I kind of see his outlook as the one we've seen for Alex Kalorn over the last couple of years. Maybe get some turns with Stamkos, maybe some power play time. And even in his age 38 season and top nine role, if that stuff breaks right for him, he could be someone with 45, 50 point upside. Okay, so yeah, that sounds like someone who will be a free agent in most leagues for most of the year. But every once in a while, we'll talk about him on the podcast when he's on a run, asking whether or not you should pick him up or whether his production is fleeting. Okay, Brian, anything about Spencer Fu, by the way, since I brought him up? Is he someone that people should care about? I feel like the day he signed with Calgary, I saw a little bit of a buzz on Twitter. People were talking about him. Is he anything that people should be considering? And also, I see in the chat that I inadvertently made a really nice pun saying that Yakupov signed out of the blue. Because he came from the St. Louis Blues, out of the Blues. Wow, I'm so clever. I have not much to say about Spencer Fu. You said we get really excited about these college free agents. And like, in a sense, you're right. Everyone lost their mind over Jimmy VC. And in the past, I mean, Drake Kajula was also somebody who people got really pumped about. These guys are, I'm not going to call them lineup fillers, but that's about their potential. Like being a useful utility player. I'm not looking to a college free agent for points. We haven't seen that happen for a while. And so uh, I'm going to have to see someone step in and be the pioneer there for recent years to be able to to get excited about any college free agent making the jump to the NHL. All right. And with that, Brian, that's all the content I've got. So unless you have any more players you want to talk about, we've named quite a few today. Thanks to everyone sticking with us, listening to the show. Obviously, everyone in the chat room, this has been a lot of fun. Obviously, we're mid-July, so maybe fantasy hockey isn't on the forefront of everyone's minds. 
you know, here I'm wearing a Toronto Blue Jays hat since it is the summertime. But you know what? With all these signings, all of a sudden, I'm getting really excited for the season. I'm starting to think a lot about fantasy hockey. I'm sure a lot of you are as well. And now's the time to do some research. You know, get ahead of the other people in your league. I'm sure soon some projections will start coming out. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to keep producing content for you. We're going to be back in a couple of weeks with an episode about designing the Ultimate Fantasy League. And we'll have other fun summer series episodes still coming at you. We'll get to Schmorgolisborg at some point, and then we'll be hitting you hard in September going back to weekly episodes. So stick with us, keeping Carlson. If you like the show, obviously give us a five-star review on iTunes. We always appreciate that. If you're interested in becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson, we've still got our promotion going where for any donation, $1 a month, you could become a patron of Keeping Carlson and get all of the patron perks that everyone gets. So that includes access to our patron-only Facebook group, access to join our patron cast, and also to download old patron casts. We talked a lot uh, last Wednesday on the patron cast. We answered every single question. It was over two hours. So if you want an extra two hours plus of fantasy hockey content, you could give us a buck and then you could go and download last Wednesday's patron cast. So for more information, check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron. I think that's it though, Brian. So let's cue the outro music. And why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? Okay, before I do, just a couple uh, items to go through. Hello to Michelle. Hey to the BH or to the Bay Ash. I'm wondering, uh, dans la forêt presque papino. I, I shouldn't really try too hard with French. Uh, but hey, thanks for listening. I wonder if there are most uh, remote listeners for, uh, for the summer. Anyway, hope you guys enjoy the show. The show is also presented by Dauber, who uh, we mentioned on our last, uh, or the last episode I was on, working through, uh, through a health issue at the moment. If you want to help support Dauber or just his plight, uh, for anyone in general, uh, sign up for your National Bone Marrow Registry. You can find a link to do that uh, over at keepingcarlson.com slash dauberken if you're in Canada. And you can also do it at keepingcarlson.com slash us if you're in the USA. Uh, again, this show was also supported by our patrons. Thank you very much to them. Elon already mentioned, join in a dollar. Get a sneak peek of what happens in the Facebook group. It's picking up already. It was really slow coming out of the end of the playoffs. And Elon, you're going to have to loop this music quite a no. few times. So Okay, actually, no. Everyone who's listening, you might be like, why did I say cue that outro music and the music didn't start? Because this is going to be too long to loop the music over and over. So how about now let's cue the outro music and read the rest of the credits. Okay, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Dauber Prospects, Frozen Pool, Corsica, well, except it's closed for the summer, but we usually use them. So shout out to Corsica. Uh, hockey analysis, hockey reference, hockey biz, hockey database, elite prospects, Roto World, and fan tracks. Thanks again to everyone tuning in. Great job, Brian. And we'll catch you all with another episode in a couple of weeks. Talk about how to design the ultimate pool. Can't wait for that. Until then, keep on keeping Carl signed.